Millions of people use Jupyter Notebooks in their workflows. Notebooks are open source tools for creating and sharing documents with live code, equations, visualizations, and explanatory text. Jupyter Notebooks have exploded in popularity in the past five years to become the standard tool for data science teams. Matthew Seal is the CTO and co-founder of Notable, a modern and collaborative notebook platform. Notable was built with enterprise-grade security and protection, secure deployment options, and high levels of availability. It also delivers a positive experience for collaborating remotely, which is important in today's environment. In this episode, Matthew talks about how Notable got started, why it's different than traditional notebooks, and what it means to collaborate in today's mostly remote environment. Matt Seal, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be back. A while ago, you came on to discuss notebook usage at Netflix. Could you refresh us? How are notebooks used at Netflix? Yeah, so notebooks actually are used for all sorts of things at Netflix now, but uh, a big chunk of the use they're used for exploring different problems and for building up these like integrations of, of different ETL tasks and operational tasks. So they use them very extensively for all the scheduled work. So scheduled data processing ends up running on top of a notebook as well as a lot of data visualization, exploration tasks, and, and a little bit of machine learning here and there. And can you say more about the problems in infrastructure that surrounded notebook usage? Yeah, so notebooks originally were built for the kind of code exploration problem where you might have very expensive operations and then some like repeated iterations against the results of that. and it sort of enhanced the idea of a, of a code REPL where you have a live session where you're working with code that, that has this mixed expense. And so the real use case first was for um, data scientists and being able to pull large amounts of data in one step and then iterate on a model or an idea or a visualization against that. And so a lot of the early tooling in, in notebooks was really focused around that, that user group and that use case. But it turns out that the, the format was highly amendable for doing other integration tasks like data processing and exploration outside of the data science and data machine learning specific fields. So a lot of the surrounding tooling for productionizing notebooks was not at a mature state at that point in the, uh, at the early point of notebook adoption. So a lot of people shied away from it because, you know, things like uh, it was difficult to port the code or, or make the code reliably re-execute and it was difficult to test and they had this kind of file that we copied around a lot of places. And so there were some mutability, immutability issues. Um, and a lot of those were, were types of problems that we were tackling at Netflix early in the notebook days. There is so much data at Netflix. Is it the volume is the volume of data a problem at all in, in terms of using a notebook, or is that less of an issue? It's usually less of an issue because whenever you're doing really large data operations, sometimes you will pull them into the process, but it's no different than if you had a script that was running, like a generic, I wrote a Python script or a SQL statement, and you were pulling that data into a single box. It, the overhead of the notebook doesn't really make that worse. It's no different than having a generic execution process. So with big data, oftentimes what you do is you use things like Spark or you use some data warehouse tool to aggregate data. So maybe you have like Druid or something else that kind of generates a view into the data that's useful for you. And you don't usually copy the whole data to your local machine. Occasionally for machine learning, you do, and you just deploy really, really big machines. But even then, you kind of have to be careful about what you pull down because you can pull more than can fit on one machine, and it's sort of an independent problem from notebooks. 
most of the time when you're using notebook, you actually, you have spark context and you're running some query someplace or some other SQL interface. And so the data is living outside of your notebook, but you're interacting with it from the notebook. The data roles at Netflix, how did the, the notebook usage get shared, you become a shared responsibility. So you have like the data analyst who's, you know, maybe developing the notebook or or machine learning scientist, whatever you want to say. And then you have these infrastructure people that have to actually deploy the notebook to production. Remind us of the, the burdens that dichotomy in workflow creates. Yeah. So if you look at how a notebook might be developed. It's actually, it's a very similar vein to how other machine learning patterns might be developed. You might start with something where you're not sure what the solution is going to look like at the beginning. So you're going to do an exploration phase. And this is actually a common thing basically all software engineering goes through. It's just that machine learning has a longer exploration phase that you come back to more often um, because it's more ambiguous what, what you need to do to achieve your desired goal. So when you start with a problem, you start exploring what the different tools are and what the data looks like. And you'll start doing things like sampling data or running some running through some function that you want to see what the result is. And you kind of play with that until you get to something where you're getting something close to the end result you want. In the case with notebooks, you know, you kind of do that exploration a lot. And at the end, you would have sort of a, a document that had all your exploration in one place kind of captured. But you still need to go through the productionization step. And other engineering disciplines also have this, but usually they have less exploration code sitting there beforehand, as I said. So one of the productionization challenges is really transitioning your um, development notebook code from a single, like large document that's explored everything to something that reproducibly reruns. So it's really important you have something that can run end to end that's going to be reliably executing the intended outcome. So you need to do things like clean up code that you no longer need, make sure it can rerun from a fresh uh, state with no like prior uh, environment context for things like maybe you ran something and then deleted it, but it was still in memory and you were relying on it, things like that. So in terms of improving that aspect, like we did a lot of investment in paper mill and integration with schedulers and read-only interfaces and kind of transportation of these notebook documents. Um, and that really helped in that type of problem space, because in the productionization of your notebook, you could systematically prove that your notebook reran from beginning to end with dummy inputs or with real inputs. And so you got the ability to kind of integration test the end to end result and kind of prove everything was okay before um, someone would take that and bring it to production. And one thing that's a little different at Netflix though, with that aspect is that not everything is handed off from one team to another. Many teams manage, even though they aren't maybe a systems engineering team, they will still manage the full life cycle of their experiment or their exploration. So they'll, they'll move it to production themselves. And so the idea was to make tooling to make that as easy as possible so people could self-service into uh, productionization of notebooks and other artifacts. Eventually, you spun out of Netflix and started a company with Michelle, who I talked to recently. Tell me about your motivation for starting a company. Yeah, so it was kind of a crazy thing to do in the middle of a pandemic. I definitely uh, second-guessed myself a few times about taking that step. But a few months later, um, I ultimately think it was it was a great decision. The reasoning behind it was that you know large companies all across uh, the tech sector, we're really having um, struggles kind of 
orienting around how to grow the notebook needs beyond kind of what had been described before. So a lot of companies kind of started on this productization path. They adopted some of the things we published at Netflix, but we did, they kind of built their own internal tools and some contributed some to the open source. And there was kind of this splattering of, of solutions, but all of them ended ultimately were having difficulty staying focused. So the teams that were doing really good work were either getting changing direction or different business needs were coming in that were disrupting their ability to kind of continue executing that plan to make their notebook experience better. And they also had a lot of struggle with shifting when, as their internal teams uh, grew from just data science or their initial use case to extended use cases, extended users. Many, uh, not just Netflix, but many of the companies that are out there that were doing notebook work really struggled to, to adopt for the multi-user aspect of notebooks, which is something that kind of spawned this idea of, of making a company that started from the beginning with the knowledge that you have a range of data users that all have needs in notebooks and you need the design from pretty early in the stage to build on top of the notebook experience to enable all those users at once on the same platform. The platform that you've built, it includes notebook workflows as well as a data discovery system or data catalog system. Talk about the tooling that you've built in your company Notable in a little more detail. Yeah, and we're still pretty early phase. So a lot of the things we've built are, are in prototype and we're, we're working with some early design partners to kind of hash out the usability and, and the, the making sure that it's a really stellar, awesome experience as we kind of grow out how many people are exposed to it. But I think maybe I'll talk a little more about what the problem is that we're solving and and then you know the tooling kind of falls out from that of what you would want to be doing. So part of the problem that's trying to be solved is, is if you build uh, you know a notebook experience for the sake of making a good notebook experience, you can make a really great tool for an individual, but you might not make a really great tool for a team or an organization of teams to, to reuse. So from that aspect, we really wanted to um, emphasize like real production and real organization workflows that you need to get through, which means you need access to your data. You need to have that in line in the same place that you would do other actions. And one of the real big appeals of notebooks is that you can do a whole bunch of things without leaving the page, without leaving the document, and you can share the result with someone else that can be rerun. And so we really want to lean into that and make it really easy as sort of a problem space to be able to connect to the data that you need to use and make, make it very visible to the user that's operating against it. And that's kind of like an engineering philosophy we're taking to the whole approach of how to build on top of Jupyter Notebooks to add those things that, that are difficult to write into an open source, but really enable you know, real world problem solving. Just to hop on the business tack for a little bit, there's a bunch of companies that have been built around Jupyter Notebooks, companies that are raising money right now, companies that have raised money already, and then there's, I'm sure there's plenty of incumbent companies that have built support and tooling for notebooks. How does the Notable approach differentiate from the competition? Yeah, and I, I think we're, we're really taking a stab at trying to do something that's a little bit different. And the reason why we decided to found this company instead of kind of just stepping away from all of them is that we really want to focus on you know the range of data users exploring outside of data science and machine learning, making sure that users that are even less familiar with coding in general have a familiar place they could land to do light, lightweight coding that interrupted with their dashboarding or other types of problems they're solving. So we really want to make 
a tool that's well integrated into the other tools in your ecosystem and can play nice with your existing ecosystem of tools that you, you're familiar with and gradually make it easier and easier to just stay within one operating place to do all your work. The other thing we really focus on that differentiates us is, you know, uh, a lot of notebook companies focus on data science or a lot of notebook companies focus on one user out of the many data users. And so we're trying to take a step back and think more, how, how do you design some of these first principles in a way that really helps uh, the, all the data users in your organization and growing to encompass those over time to make sure that you don't have to have 10 different tools for your different data users to feel comfortable. And I think that's something that's been a differentiator from a lot of prior notebook efforts or prior notebook efforts have had to try and change their direction to accommodate other users, or they, they really want to focus on one user and do it really well for that one user. Usage that you've seen thus far from companies outside of Netflix, how does it differ from what you've seen at Netflix? I mean, Netflix is one of these very sophisticated organizations so that the tooling that can be built within Netflix is somewhat domain-specific by default. How does what you've built externally compare to what you had internally at Netflix? Yeah, you know, the funny thing is when we, when we were at Netflix and kind of doing this promotion of how we were using notebooks and kind of when we last talked on the show here, shortly thereafter, there was a lot of interest from other companies wanting to talk with us about things. And, and we sort of got together with, with different groups and tried to get um, either meet them one-on-one and talk about what they were doing in notebooks. Or we also had a, you know, some sessions where we pulled in groups of people from different companies that were all in the notebook space trying to figure out what to do. Turns out pretty much everyone had the same set of problems with the same set of domain issues in the same organization uh, of, of data issues and user issues that they were all solving independently in, the, in mostly the same way. So it turns out that while you know many people think that Netflix is this monolith of, of perfect engineering and it has everything there, the reality is, is we were solving the problems. We were just talking about a little more openly about what we were solving, but everyone in, in the space was kind of tackling the same core principle issues and different people solve different core principle issues within that space to differing degrees. I mean, I, I would say that for backend side of things and integration with systems, Netflix did quite well on that front. Uh, but then other companies out there uh, like Amazon and Microsoft did probably more on the front end experience side of things or the integration to their own stack, uh, which was more relevant to other people. And the, the reality is, is that, you know, Netflix kind of stopped at the point of things that it needed for itself. And that it was very clear that there was a scope of problems beyond the things that Netflix was solving immediately or had the resources for that they could be applicable to everyone. The sophistication of the data world, the data market, has increased pretty rapidly over the last five years, and yet it seems like the same problems existed that uh, the same problems exist today that existed five years ago when I started doing this podcast. Like, you still have this problem of handoff, infrastructure handoff, and like kind of the CI/CD workflow of data systems, like data models, data engineering, there's not as much of a, like, you know, CICD pipelines for some random microservice these days feels very smooth and ironed out, and there's not really, like, many problems there. It's gotten to the point where it's like, okay, can you build a better UX for continuous integration, continuous delivery? But in the data workflows, there's still, like, acute 
real problems. We're not at the point where we can just start like painting over these existing solutions with some glossy coloring and glossy UX. We still don't really know how to get past the problem of like, okay, I dump data into a data lake, and then I'm going to explore it in the data lake, and then maybe I'm moving it into like a Kafka thing, or I'm moving it into Spark cluster and doing some stuff there. And it's like really convoluted. At least that's my sense. Do you do you share that that sense of the data landscape? I think we are still pretty far from highly mature systems you can pull out of the box. I think that the um, the really successful companies that have good data orgs do a lot of work that in 10 years, maybe 20, if the trend is slow, we'll look back on and be like, oh man, why didn't we have tool X and Y? This, this, was, this is so much easier now. And I think it's a natural progression thing. I think data is more complicated than people give it credit for. It seems simple at first, but the combinatorial space of problems is large. And a lot of the initial assumptions in, in standard engineering, other engineering disciplines get violated and as data grows. So you get this always talking about scale, scale, scale. And I think as a result, you, you feels like things aren't progressing. I do think there has been dimensions of the problem that have gotten a lot more standardized or a lot, a lot better. They're not where they need to be. But for example, I think that a lot more ETL has gotten standardized around scheduled work that has integration testing against it. I think it's a much more common pattern than it was a couple of years ago. The scheduler space still is pretty contested for what's going to be a, a really good solution for everyone as they grow past certain data scale boundaries. But I think that some of the some of the data tooling has gotten a little more recognized. You know, we don't have as many new SQL engines for large data coming up as there used to be, though there are still new ones cropping up trying to solve the problems a little bit better. I would say for the the part where we don't have really good, like it's pretty much where it was several years ago, is for very small installations and setups. It's a little easier than it was to get up like a compute cluster and get your initial setup, but your data lifecycle and ecosystem around the compute uh, is still very hard as a, as a new company to get that established in a mature manner. Um, you usually have to put a lot of resources or time or hire very specifically high-skilled people to put all the pieces of the puzzle together to make a coherent data story for your company. And I do think that is probably further behind. We're hoping some with notebooks will help on one dimension of that around if you make it really easy for the, the people who are less technical to interact with that warehouse, you do reduce one of the friction points that's there, which is once you get your basic ecosystem up and you have a data interaction with your warehouse, Usually from there, then you have to go build custom tools for every individual user group you have. And that's another big hurdle for people. And that's something I feel Notebooks has an opportunity to solve. It's not the only way to solve it for sure, but it is an aspect of that that I think will keep getting better with different tools in the near future. You mentioned the scheduler layer. Is this, are we talking about the data schedulers like the Airflow or Prefect or Dagster? Yeah, exactly. I think the scheduling on top of uh, those systems for doing your, your data operations, I think a lot of people have very ad hoc setups before, and there's a little more consistency to that. And there's, as you mentioned, like some of the, the kind of common players that people look at to start with their uh, scheduling systems. Nick is pretty coy about Dagster, and I, I'm not sure how much usage it has. Have you tried that out yet? Have you tried out Elemental Dagster? I've been a fan of of Nick's work with Daxter since like the day they started. I actually connected with him very early and I, I thought the tool he's building had a lot of the the right views into data problems mixed with scheduling. And so I've, I've always been very bullish and excited by what he's doing in that front. 
And they, they've been kind of working through some of the data problems that they deal with, that they run into the customers and making a better experience over time. I think there's still a lot of open room for data scheduling systems to be made better and easier for different use cases. But I think the, the corner the DAGs are trying to target is being well addressed by, by their roadmap or should be if they keep executing well. So the, you know, you talked a little bit about the companies outside of Netflix and where they're at and the problems they have. I would like, like, like to know a little bit more about what exactly are the systems and the services that are included in Notable? What are the solutions that you're giving to people? Because, you know, Jupyter Notebooks are open sourced and, you know, what are you kind of adding on top of that open source notebook layer that adds value? If you actually look and you talk to like, we've talked to dozens of companies and hundreds of people on, on how they use notebooks and across the past few years, and especially since we started uh, founding Notable, th- there's this really common consensus of really fundamental and very specific problems that come up with, you know, trying to host your own Jupyter. I think having an open source Jupyter hub that you can bring up and it has Jupyter Lab and extensions and, and the kind of ease of getting that up has been made really like has been really well done by like especially some of the folks over at Berkeley and make that like super simple so I think it's a really good starting place for getting you know an ecosystem up and running and for some people that's sufficient but you very quickly run into all sorts of integration issues where you know the open source kind of doesn't have you know a specific answer for that integration like you don't have direct access to your data system from your notebook so you often have to write a lot of boilerplate code to connect to your data and then you need to do that securely you need to do things like quality of life for extended things that work in jupyter but don't have you know a, a good open source extension for displaying them all the way down to like little things like you know what's your experience with uh how SQL looks in your in your notebook, right? Normally, you don't get nice linting or autocomplete or visibility into the data you're operating on. Um, and those things you can kind of slowly add to open source. But what we're really aiming at doing is connecting all of your production workflow patterns through the notebook. And I think in terms of solving problems, we want to make sure that, you know, the fundamental things like how your notebooks are versioned, how they're integrated with your source control, how you can easily integrate with your scheduler. How can you easily run all of the different patterns you want without having the UI get in the way, where in some places the UI was designed for one use case. So kind of want to keep the protocol, but we want to really extend in these common patterns everyone hits around data governance, notebook governance. I think the other thing that really comes into play is when you get when you go past having hundreds of notebooks, it becomes very hard to track what's going on. So a lot of enterprise systems also focus on, you know, traceability and awareness of what's happening in your ecosystem. And that's something that isn't in the open source because for for most cases, it's outside the scope of an open source solution. So those are the types of problems we're trying to solve. And we have some pretty good steps to them already. And we've got some amazing prototypes and many of the things already implemented, but we're still kind of working through what the details are before we really say exactly how they're, they're going to work in the open after we get feedback from our early uh, early partners on how well it goes. The market is, as I said, fraught with a lot of different companies that are attacking this. Do you feel like what you've built thus far with Notable has um, a, a good enough shot at being dominant? Because it, it's like, 
I feel like a, a lot of these different solutions could sort of bolt on the the tooling that you've built with Notable. And I just wonder how you're going to navigate the uh, competitive dynamics of uh, the business of, of making a notebook platform. Yeah, so I actually see that um, in, in the ecosystem of, of all the notebook offerings, there's actually you know a lot of different uh, companies that focus on niches of the problem, of problems for different data users. And there's also people targeted for solving for like the general IC case of someone who wants a better user experience within just a single notebook. I think where Notable really brings something new to the field is that we know how these things need to integrate in enterprise systems and we know how to build tools such that you make it very natural for the whole ecosystem and organization to, to interop with the notebook, which means your data experience within the notebook should be unparalleled and compared to the other offerings, but we won't have lock-in to, to our offering. If, um, since we're building everything on top of Jupyter and we're making it all compliant with Jupyter specs and be able to run in other Jupyter contexts, it's one of those things where if someone wanted to use a different tool, we would play nicely with it. And we don't want to be one of those all or nothing tools where somebody could come in and only use our tool. And I think that's been the death of a lot of companies in the space in the past they try to reinvent the entire world at once. So you have to do everything their way or nothing. And that really makes it hard for early adoption. And it really makes it hard for transition to, to using different tools within the ecosystem or adjacent tools. And I think we have a good knowledge of, of all those interactions and really good knowledge of what's needed in a, in a user experience to make that data usage uh, real world applicable. The scheduling problem that you solved with Papermill at Netflix, is that part of what you're offering with your, with Notable or is are you focused more on the data catalog and uh, data usage side of things? All right. So on the scheduling case, we're definitely going to bring um, you know the knowledge we have to integrate Papermill and make that a first-class operation within, within Notable. I think one of the things we're also going to bring is the awareness of how to play nicely with lots of different scheduler systems and not force a person to kind of abandon what they already have or reinvent the wheel that they've already designed for their own system. So we're, we're going to emphasize a lot on being able to play nice with the existing schedule that someone has and making it, you know, very smooth to use. And I think actually that's been a really powerful aspect of the work we did with paper mill and the schedule integration talks that we did. Because the, the work we did, made, it was really easy to use paper mill in almost any scheduler. Matter of fact, even uh, things like Airflow published the paper mill operator just in their open source. This here's how you use it, and that was actually the really thing that really triggered a lot of popularity with that that tool chain. Is that the um, the ability to use it anywhere was was very high, so all sorts of systems could adopt it with ease. What we'll probably do is make sure that you have a tighter integration between a scheduler and your notebook system, so that you don't have to leave your system to kind of know what's happened in the scheduler and, and be able to interop between the two much better. As you're engaging with these companies that are potential customers of Notable, what have you learned? What have you learned about how their infrastructure is set up and how they are using notebooks? I, am, I mean, whenever I ask this kind of question to somebody, the answer tends to be, well, we're surprised every single time we see a, a, you know some, de- some customer deployment. They're always using something in a weird way. So what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, so far... A lot of it has been has been pretty standard. A really common thing that's been asked a lot is people just want something that's a little bit better than the open source. Like like we'll do all these like fancy things we're gonna do and these like 
awesome integrations and things. And, and honestly, a lot of people are at the stage of their de- deployment and integration lifecycle where they need like the most basic interaction improvements. And I was even surprised on things with like how much people cared about the visibility and the, the governance of like, what even are these notebooks? I mean, it's not surprising, but it, it is in its own way. Just having the knowledge of where all the notebooks are, who owns them and what, and how, how often are they used? Like the most basic usage stats are something that's like one of the most commonly asked for things that we kind of just assume was for granted. It doesn't everyone build this or have this. And uh, I think it's one, something that was a little, a little surprising that like that alone gets people interested in using a new product. And I think that's a really low barrier. So the barrier being so low is lower than we expected. I think it gives cadence or credence to why the, uh, launching this company that solves a lot of these basic problems as a, and then start solving the really hard problems had a lot of value add for us is that we know those problems were going to be solved on day one. Tell me about the necessity of sharing notebooks, like one company having a notebook and that, you know, might be used as a template for a lot of different things and other people needing to use that template. I'd love to get into, into some usage of, of notebooks that people, some usage and workflows that different companies are using it for. Yeah, and there's there's a few interesting ones. I'll maybe talk some about the Netflix one, and then I'll talk some about uh, some other use cases that Netflix didn't use as much. But in the case where you kind of promote a notebook to a template, you can think of this as elevating the the level that you're sharing the notebook from like individuals you're sharing with to a whole org and giving it some first-class attributes like making your scheduler know about that template by name and know all the arguments it needs or the parameters it needs to execute. And in this promotion process, you can sort of get these like golden kind of stamped versions of notebooks that are uh, available in immutable form that, that have a well-defined characteristic of, of operating. So it's a, it's a complete integration operation task. And when you get some of those, you can, what, what we would do at Netflix is we exposed, um, these templates and we let any team contribute. So lots of teams contributed their own templates for common workflows across several teams they supported. And then all they had to do to tell a user was they just submit this notebook. They kind of go through a review process. They write a test or three for that. And they uh, promote it through after they've kind of done all the things like documentation and things in the notebook that, that we pull out. And then from there, all of a sudden, all their users could just specify, oh, here's the name. It auto has all the arguments you need and you just need to fill them in with Here's a clear auto-generated doc and everything is there for you out of the box. And that was a really easy way for people to introduce new common patterns. So something like a really, you know, the most basic one is my Spark template where I want to run a Spark job and then I just want that to be able to pass in a simple Sparks query and it just run. But then I also want the option to configure anything. And, you know, that's a really easy thing to build a template for uh, and it's very visible what you're doing. Then some more complicated things you might do might be like some sort of synchronization from like a common source. Like maybe you have a vendor who's generating, I'm making this up, but a vendor who's generating CSV content and you need to transform that, do some filtering, or maybe just even move that from that system to one of your other systems where you have a more mature pipeline to run after. And those little like get data from A to B is a super common pattern that it usually isn't that much code. Sometimes it is more if it's a system that doesn't have a good library behind it. But usually you just have dozens of these little use cases where I need to get data from system A to system B. And it's a perfect use case for, for a notebook template. In terms of sharing, I think 
one of the really important attributes that, that enables that is you need you need immutability and you need read-only modes. So you need to have everything you run referenced from an immutable source. And what I mean by that is that you do, your version that you're running for your template or your notebook is not going to change between executions. You might, in the next execution, choose the latest version, but you can always run version 647, and it will run that exact code, and you know what that code is. And that's a really important attribute for productionization and, and maturity of a, of a scheduled integrated system. And then read-only is also super important. You want to be able to read the results or read the template without knowing no one can edit the, the source of truth or edit what the results were. If you want to get new results or you want to change it, you always make somebody copy or make a new version. Uh, and then from there, they can kind of play with it as they want, but it doesn't affect the original source of truth. And those two attributes really enabled those kind of well-productionized, shared, templated notebooks. And they're pretty simple. You just need to make sure you put the rules and the interfaces in to enable that. Outside of Netflix, there were lots of interesting use cases, things like there were some great ones around uh, security exploration. People would do uh, system inspection and kind of run through a checklist of things to look for uh, intrusion or anomalies within their system, either for security purposes or even as a data analysis thing, finding anomalies and data that they're being given or they're producing. And that was a really interesting use case where you kind of run that periodically and kind of have an alert trigger when, when something's out of band or, or as a template for a runbook. We did this a lot actually at Netflix. And I know other people did other places where you, you can actually make all your kind of pager duty runbooks, just little notebooks you can run through. You can document manual steps you need to take. You can put the automated, like do these API calls with this input here. And you can kind of capture what someone needs to run through in an emergency situation to kind of repair a system that's in, in dire straits. Um, and those are like a couple really common examples of productionization of notebooks that can be done well. Oh, I forgot one attribute that you really want with all of these. You want to be able to write an integration test. So you want at least one test, preferably a couple, that run through the logic of the notebook end to end. And for that, you need to keep the notebook fairly linear. Otherwise, your integration test will have a hard time covering the branching pattern and the, at the edge cases that you can run to within the notebook. Outside the notebook, the ecosystem you're interacting with might have lots of edge cases, but you want to prove that the notebook logic is sound and that when you run it, it's going to reproduce what you run. And a really common thing there to do is just schedule a paper mill job to run your notebook that you're going to use in, in the real setting with some dummy inputs and just run that every time anything related to it changes or on some schedule, and then you, you have a reliable way of knowing that your notebook's gonna be okay. What's different from when we built our systems that's now available as well is unit testing in notebooks is, is more capable. So there's a, a library I helped a Google Summer of Code student work on called Testbook, which is in like kind of the first release cycle of, of features. And that enables doing unit testing at your IPMYB file like as though if it were a PY file. Today, that's only, that's only primarily supporting the Python use case, but it's very easy to extend it to other languages. So, so now you could have more complicated, like almost library functions within there, and you could test and ensure they work. And I think there's going to be more tooling like that to make interoperability with notebooks and, and standard code practices easier. Developments in the machine learning space, this space is obviously moving really fast. Are there any opportunities to leverage all the change going on in the machine learning ecosystem as a product designer for Notable? Like, do, what do you see as an opportunity business-wise in in uh, making better machine learning experiences through your notebook platform? For machine learning, there's 
a ton of great new libraries that have come up and I think it's been a rapidly evolving space, but more and more libraries are coming out of the box with visualization enabled by default. And a really natural place to do that visualization is within a notebook because you don't have to have some export you're going to look at or some other system where you're going to dump the results you need, you need to analyze. So more and more machine learning libraries are actually coming out of the box with support for outputs for Jupyter um, that render naturally. And then you get a much richer evaluation experimentation pattern where you need much fewer lines of code in order to get a rich representation of the state of the problem you're looking at or, or the state of the result that you're looking at. And for the tools that are out there that are that are up and coming or, or already established, I think that's like a really winning aspect of notebook integration that, you know, if you're looking at solving for that corner of the um, data user experience, then making sure those tools behave really naturally within a notebook experience is, is critical. You might do things like make sure if they do have visualizations that they they get captured cleanly and, re and render nicely. You, you need to do things like if they don't have a visualization, but they have the data for building a visualization, maybe automating when that is run in a notebook experience to um, additionally trigger off visualization rendering for the user and making it so that the user can do visualization with less code. I think that's um, an aspect that's proven uh, very valuable for lots of people. And that might even be in the surprising fact side of thing that auto viz or even just the, the, Easy viz is super valuable to people because you waste so much time trying to fiddle with getting your x-axis right or, or not quite selecting your data correctly and having a, a UI that just renders automatically to show that I think makes those tools much more usable. And notebooks are unique in that they have that visualization built right next to your code execution so you don't have to leave the tool to do that. The productionization of notebooks, I'd like to revisit this. What are the difficult parts of getting a notebook into production and maintaining that notebook in production, updating it over time? For uh, notebooks in general, I actually re reverse it from the other way around. I think if you start with a lot of people get stuck on, hey, how would I productionize a notebook relative to this really sophisticated library with large amounts of DevOps tooling and CICD tooling already in place or lots of best practices? I think actually where the problem is, usually if you have a lot of those tools in place, productionizing a notebook is like productionizing anything else. You make sure you have a test, you make sure you have code review, and you have a deployment cycle that, that controls when that notebook goes to users. And beyond that point, that in the standard execution environment is pretty normal. You know, you're in this case, you're usually doing integration tests and you're usually doing some sort of SHA based promotion to whatever your uh, production uh, line is for, for, uh, exposing that asset to a user, either in an automated or manual fashion. And when you actually look at it from the reverse side, look at actually how how most orgs have data usage. And you were talking about like things are still kind of not great in data usage tooling. A lot of orgs, even very big, sophisticated orgs, have a million S3 files that have some Python code in them that do their ETL. And they're someplace and they're copied between places or they're in someone's hard drive or an on-prem system. And they just have these scripts that are everywhere. And if you come at it from that point, those like those users have been neglected from tooling. So the tooling is honestly kind of hard to get set up. And it, it's, it's one to three 
context shifts away from the problem that, that these other users like data analysts and data engineers are focused on. They're not focused on best practices around programming tooling. They're focused on getting a data result to their, to their business to analyze. So they're looking, they care much more about the like dimensions of the data they're working with and like the consistency of it. And then tertiary concerns are things like code quality or version control. And they're gradually growing into using those tools and there's things that make them smoother so they don't have to think actively about using those aspects. But if you start from that POV of a user, you had a script someplace that's stashed, I don't know where, and you run that for your production and then that person moves teams or leaves the organization and then your ETL pipeline stops working one day, you have very little visibility. So your productionization of that script was pretty poor. Um, if you think of how a notebook, a notebook could be used in the same way where I did some development in my notebook in my personal space, I ran a schedule with it, and then I kind of walked away. Or I run it every morning on Monday, I manually go run my notebook. This is a more common pattern than, than people care to admit. So I think in, when you want to talk about productionization, you really want to make it easy to get away from those patterns without the user having to think a lot about what they're doing. So one thing, you know, making very visible the versions, like automating the scripts they're doing to be into you know, some sort of linear or actual version control system to get visibility into changes over time without the user having to change their workflows substantially. Also making the tooling for how you're interfacing. Like one thing that made productionization of notebooks much more successful at Netflix was users could start using notebook templates without knowing they were using a notebook. They didn't have to know what a notebook was. It was a tertiary concern to them until they got used to using one. But what we did was the way you executed, your result would be a notebook. And if you look at what ran as the source, it was a notebook and you just had read-only copies of all these things. And when we would put to people for how to debug, you know, you want to productionize the life cycle of something. So you need to make debugging easy. You need to make relaunching the environment that something ran in easy. And you need to make it easier to review and analyze what changes have happened. And so you can kind of make chip away at these problems from different angles, but being able to see what ran, being able to reproduce the environment without the user doing any action, like just clicking one button, I should be able to rerun in a live environment what I ran in a scheduled environment that was automatically built for me. And that's where you want to pull all the user's tertiary concerns into a common pattern that helps the productionization from a coding point of view or a code engineering point of view without encumbering the user with having to learn 10 systems. And I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up. And I don't think it's specific to notebooks. I think it's just that people that deep let, leaned into notebooks early, oftentimes for users who were in the groups where coding best practices were tertiary to their primary day job concerns. The whole idea of generating new notebooks from immutable read-only notebooks, it reminds me of the... I think it was a post by Max Buscheman a, a while ago about the, the immutable immutable functional data engineering. Does that resonate with you, the idea that you have these immutable structures that you reuse and you generate new structures from those, even with as, with as high a abstraction as a Jupyter notebook? Absolutely. I mean, and if you look at the at the structure of a Jupyter Notebook file. It's a well-schema JSON document that you can think of as a little tree structure. So it actually mirrors a lot of those types of problems, though you don't really use it at that scope for, for the type of problem we're talking about with immutability, but it, it is there and, and is corollary. What you have with the notebook is usually a very small source document. You know, it's not like this gigabytes of data uh, type of problem, even though it might be processing gigabytes or terabytes of data. 
the notebook immutability mirrors that a lot. So I think you saw kind of a wave of immutable coding practices in different places, um, but actually in terms of system engineering, making immutable artifacts. So like this is what versioning and packaging was doing very early. I load version 1.12.3 of my package. I know exactly what's in that package. I have a SHA to know what it is. I'm not going to accidentally get some slight change that shouldn't affect anything, but ultimately um, ruins my Friday with taking down my system. You have the same thing with the notebook document. You want to make these versions of the notebook that kind of follow through history of what was the state of the notebook when it ran at a certain point in time. And if you think of that as either Git version control or linear versioning, you get a very similar um, set of, of resulting attributes of the system that you get with immutable data with data systems. The difference being that immutable data systems have the extra problem of having to solve for the fact that the amount of data you have can start costing a lot of money. So you, with immutable data structures, you have to be conscientious of how do you efficiently use space and how do you efficiently kind of clean up or, or wrap up immutable actions in a way that's either encoded such that you don't use up a lot of extra space or you throw away old history so that you don't spend a bunch of extra money. The notebook side, you can have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of notebooks. And usually your expense, that is like 0.001% of your expense compared to the data side that they're operating against. So it's actually even a little easier in that constraint to think of. As we begin to wind down, do you have any predictions for the future of notebook infrastructure or even just data engineering infrastructure more broadly? I think that a lot of companies are going to be adopting more mature data life cycles in the past few years, I think it's become very apparent to many kind of, uh, you wouldn't call them tech companies, but companies that have tech infrastructure, that their data quality of, of the, their ecosystem around their data is causing data quality issues. And as a result, there's been a lot more attention on like the pyramid of needs in a sense of your data system and that there isn't just a you pull out solution A and everything is solved. Uh, for, for all of your data problems, but really solving fundamental needs and then intermediate needs and then advanced needs. So this would be mapping to something like, you know, the very basics of, I know where all my tables are and I know when they're updated. That might be a very minimal thing. Then you might have a layer above that of, okay, well, I know when data lands that I have no nulls in my non-nullable columns. So, you know, some really basic things that I know are going to be there. And then maybe a layer above that might be, I know when data lands that is valid, but incorrect. So you have more checks for audits before you release downstream actions for users. And I've seen a trend of a lot of companies thinking and talking about this domain of their problems a lot more. And before it was kind of isolated to maybe, you know, the top 20 or 30 tech companies that really dug into that and tried to solve those problems. And so I envisioned that tooling Supporting that and and above that will be very critical in the next few years. And I think that's a place where things will grow. Matt, thank you so much for coming back on the show and congrats on the company. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me.